Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. Always appreciate being included as a part of your day, and today is going to be a heavy policy day on AOA. We're going to start looking at the cattle market with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services here in just a moment. Then we're going to talk renewable diesel. Kurt Kovarik, Director of Federal Policy at the Clean Fuel Alliance America, will be joining us for an update on the action in D.C. in that space this week. And then in segment three, Jackie Fatka, Policy Editor with AgriPulse, will be joining us. There are conversations happening right now in Washington, D.C. to put some work requirements for SNAP into a discussion about the debt ceiling. What's that going to do to farm bill negotiations as the summer goes on? Jackie will fill us in on that. And we're going to close today's show with Mike Steenhook, director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. He's got some concerns about ongoing labor issues across many of the ways we transport our bulk commodities. So stay tuned. We'll have all of that coming in just a bit. But before we do, we've got to turn our focus back to this record-setting cattle market. Dennis Smith, Archer Financial Services, joins us now. And Dennis, oh, so far, I haven't seen too much cash trade develop yet this week. Is your expectation that prices might be a little softer this week than they were last week? Yeah, that's right. We uh, And that's what we've experienced so far. They call it, uh, I don't know, $1 to $2 lower on a bulk of the trade. Now, we have seen uh, 57,600 on the negotiated volume, sort of in sneaky type fashion. Uh, packers buying cattle, call it one lower in the Southern Plains. It, that is one lower in Texas, about two and a half lower in Kansas and a little bit lower, two to two and a half lower in Nebraska. So the cash is anywhere from 173 on the low side to 183 on the upper side uh, with the prices in the north holding the premium over the prices in the south. All pretty understandable given the tightness of the supply situation. Dennis, on the Packers side, given the fact that we're seeing some softness today, does this tell you that the kill is going to be a little shorter here this week and potentially next week? I don't think so. I think the kill will come back up to the 130 area is kind of what we're expecting right now. Uh, and that was, uh, or I should say, 630 area, 630,000. Uh, 613 was your kill last week. So uh, there's no incentive uh, to, to back off this slaughter. Packers are still making money. Margins are still profitable despite the record high case steer prices. And that's because demand for beef continues to be red hot, in fact, record high. And that wholesale beef, the choice is right back up to the recent highs in that 307 price area. So consumers are still out there. They're meeting these higher prices at the meat case, Dennis, and they're, they're still writing the checks, it sounds like. Are they starting to slow down, do we know, with the cold pullback and slaughter? I imagine the beef volumes are going to be coming down in the coming weeks. Well, we're not sure, Mike. Uh, all of the wholesale beef prices are holding record highs for this time of the year. But what we think we've experienced here in the last couple of years, uh, beef prices at retail 
have been expensive and they've never really sat back very far. So what I'm saying is I don't think uh, the consumer is experiencing sticker shock right now. There's not been a big change, a big increase in retail beef prices. It's really been more of the same. And at this price level, with unemployment where it is, what, 3.5% with virtually everybody in the country working that wants to work, Everybody is, is happy with uh, beef consumption at, at all-time highs right now. We do love to see it, Dennis. But, of course, bear markets begin when we are all the most bulled up. And it's hard to find somebody who's bearish this cattle market right now. But, of course, April, this is the seasonal high. What risks are in this cattle market as we move from April towards June, Dennis? Well, the biggest risk is is uh, from the outside markets. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates, trying to slow this thing down, and they've had very little success doing that. We're still creating lots of jobs, uh, but uh, it, it, the job creation is slowing, but is by no means a recessionary-type environment just yet. There's all sorts of signs and the indication of recession, uh, but it's not happened yet. So recession is, is uh, uh, the, the number one flag or, or possibility, uh, followed by, you know, uh, just the outside market influence like we experienced with the uh, banking crisis, which turned out to be kind of a two-week affair uh, driving the market lower. So I, I see a very little chance uh, of the outside markets uh, derailing this cattle market in the short term. That's, of course, just my opinion. Right. Things can always change. That's for sure, Dennis. But you mentioned that Packers still have a positive margin, even though they've they've seen some of these record prices there at the retail level. We've also seen margin return to positive territory for the cattle feeder. Sterling Beef Profit Tracker had them at making $380 plus ahead here in this past week. Cattle feeder going to continue to pile those winnings back into the fatter feeder cattle market, Dennis? Well, I, you would presume so, and boy, the feeder cattle futures market is saying that because you have a, a, a sharp contrast between the two markets, and what I'm referring to is the basis. Feeder cattle futures and the deferreds are sharply higher and trading substantially over the feeder index, just the opposite in the live cattle board with June, August, October trading at a sharp discount to the cash market. So it's quite a contrast in the two, uh, but, but the tightness in feeder cattle supplies is expected to drive prices higher uh, moving forward. And uh, if corn prices happen to take another drop, that, that would only uh, throw another log on the fire. Well, Dennis, looking at logs to go on the fire Friday afternoon, we will have the April cattle on feed USDA report. What are you expecting to see and what's the trade expecting in this report? Yeah, the trade is expecting uh, another round of lower placements during the month of March with, with the average guess at 95% of a year ago. I believe, Mike, this would be the seventh consecutive month of uh, placements coming in below year-ago placements. So certainly a, a tightening situation. Marketings are projected at around 99%, and, uh, and that leaves us with on-feed numbers uh, basically 5% below a year ago at 95%. That's the average guesses going into this report this afternoon. 
All right, we'll see how that pans out. Dennis, before we let you go, the hog market, are we going to find a bidder in that lean hog complex here soon? We might. Uh, interesting uh, chart pattern yesterday with a very narrow range in the June hog, 110-point range. Uh, in the in the face of a downward revision in the port cutout, which uh, contributed to the to the lower open, but there was no downside follow through. Uh, I'm hearing that the pork is getting cleaned up. We might see the cutout value to turn higher here in the short term. All right, things to watch all across the protein space. We've been talking with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services, and Dennis, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. And folks, stay with us. Kurt Kovarik of Clean Fuels Alliance America will join us with a look at what's happening in the renewable biodiesel industry when AOA returns. Leave it right here. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. 
If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Back on December 1st, 2022, the U.S. EPA released a three-year proposal for biofuel volumes across the United States. Now, the ethanol industry was, was relatively pleased with the proposal from the, uh, the EPA on that RFS three-year set rule. But our friends in the renewable diesel space believe that maybe EPA has some, some more to learn when it comes to their industry. Joining us now to talk about it is Kurt Kovarik. He's the Director of Federal Policy at Clean Fuel Alliance America. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, glad to be with you, Mike. Let's talk about the RFS set rule first. Michael Regan, chair of the EPA, was uh, was under fire earlier this week in Capitol Hill talking about this set rule. And Kurt, could you take us back? What does Clean Fuels Alliance America, what are the objections to the RFS set that was released back in 2022? Sure. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, so the proposal that came out in December was a three-year plan for 2023, 24, and 25 to set volumes for all the categories, including biomass-based diesel. This is the first time EPA has had uh, the wherewithal to do a multiple-year proposal, which we certainly looked at as a positive development because it provides longer-term certainty rather than the year-to-year. -year. Unfortunately, what EPA proposed uh, really misses the mark. And, and here's an example of, of why. In the 2022 proposal, they uh, finalized a rule that increased our volumes year-over-year by 330 million gallons. In this proposal for 23, 24, and 25, in total, they propose increasing our volumes by less than 200 million gallons. It's about an average of 65 million gallons a year. And in the, in the final year of their proposal in 2025, uh, the volume for biomass-based diesel is below 3 billion gallons. Well, the fact of the matter is we're above 3 billion gallons right now, and we're in 2022. So uh, they're failing to use the program as Congress intended, and that is to uh, drive the market, force uh, petroleum companies to blend the fuel, and send the signals that the country wants uh, additional homegrown, renewable, lower carbon uh, petroleum replacements and biomass-based diesel. Absolutely. And this is something I know that Clean Fuels Alliance America has been driving home at every opportunity you've had with a, a, a hearing here in front of the EPA. And this past week, Kurt, I understand Congress got the chance to, to question Administrator Michael Regan about this. Can you talk a little bit about who was who was pushing or who was driving the conversation on renewable diesel here at the uh, the Ag Committee hearing this week? Sure. So we had a there was a uh, an Ag Committee hearing, as you mentioned, in the House of Representatives. Um, we had about I think close to a dozen members raised biofuels in some context. Some, some were uh, specific to ethanol, but about eight or 10 of them were specific to the disappointment in, in EPA's calculation and in, in proposing 
biomass-based diesel volumes from uh, the ranking member and uh, uh, Mr. Scott to uh, all the way down the dais, Representatives Finstad from Minnesota, Bach from Illinois, Angie Craig from Minnesota, uh, a whole range of folks basically calling into question. And, and here's why this is so significant, and that is we've never seen such excitement and interest and investment in renewable fuels. We've 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 seen you know upwards of a couple billion gallons of announced new investments in renewable diesel, primarily primarily by petroleum companies, uh, but but new entrants. And what is that doing? That's sending the signal for growth. And as a result, we're seeing upwards of six billion dollars in new uh, oil crush capacity announcements being made throughout the Midwest. Twenty facilities expanding soybean crush by 35% from where it is today, which is fantastic. It's great for uh, a soybean farmer. It's great for a value-added agriculture. It's great for climate because now we're able to use additional soybean oil supplies to, to, to convert them into a low-carbon transportation fuel. So that's why uh, all of the members on the committee were very interested to say, listen, EPA, Administrator Regan, how did you not see this? How are you not aware that this transition is taking place, and how could you not use the RFS RVO proposal uh, to help facilitate it? And to his credit, he said, listen, I, I can't provide specifics. We're in an open comment period, but we are very aware that there's additional data about feedstock availability, et cetera, uh, and we're going to take a closer look at that, and we're going to make sure that the, that the proposal gets it right when they finalize it here in mid-June. I'm hopeful that that's the case. Uh, I feel like we're doing everything we need to, and we've had a lot of folks uh, raising this issue with the administration. So I feel like uh, the momentum is on our side. So with that being the case, we we are, it does sound like the EPA is open and receptive to additional information, additional facts on this matter. Kurt, what will be the role of Clean Fuels Alliance America in securing that additional information for EPA so they can make the right call when June comes around and that final rule gets proposed? Yeah, great question. We're working with a lot of stakeholders, particularly in the soybean crushing industry, uh, to get a better understanding, to get in front of the, the, the economists at EPA and USDA to make sure that they're looking at, you know, real-time data and information about the transition and the innovation and the investment that's being made in the feedstock side so that they understand that this isn't just a hope or a wish, that this investment is happening and new feedstocks are going to come online, and the RVO should support it. We Just last week, we had uh, 17 senators weigh in with EPA in a letter. We had 37 members of the House of Representatives weigh in in a very similar fashion, basically telling EPA uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at risk. If, if, if the RVO doesn't uh, set the stage for additional growth, you know, some of this investment could, could be lost. And no one wants to say that, you know, that, that, that announcement that we made to invest $500 million or a billion dollars in your community uh, isn't going to happen now because EPA missed the mark. That would be terribly embarrassing. It would be inconsistent with what the program was meant to do. And quite frankly, it'd be in inconsistent with uh, Administrator Regan's own statements yesterday that they intend to grow this and continue that growth trajectory. 
And Kurt, my understanding is it would be inconsistent with their goals to reduce uh, carbon emissions. We've got renewable biodiesel available right now. We've got biofuels like ethanol available right now, and they can clean up emissions from tailpipes today. I understand you recently sent a letter to Senator Markey there at the Senate Committee on the Environment and Public Works. D do you think the administration and legislators understand the value of incorporating more biofuels into the fuel supply right now? I think some uh, policymakers do understand the role for low carbon biofuels. And Administrator Regan uh, committed to that yesterday in the ag hearing. But I will say this, I, I think words are easy to come by, uh, action is a little bit harder. When you see all of the proposals from this administration um, and, and, and others singularly focused on electric vehicles. And, you know, when we, when we try to have that conversation, say, listen, you know, we're not opposed to electrification by any means, but you've got to be realistic in terms of uh, how quickly you think electrification will occur in heavy duty, truck transportation, farm construction, aviation, railroads. If, if it's 30 years off or, 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 or never going to occur, why wouldn't you put your foot on the gas pedal with respect to low carbon biofuels that are delivering today 75% less carbon emissions than their petroleum counterpart. This is a tool in the toolbox. I, you know, I understand that they, uh, it's not their preferred, uh, perhaps, tool, but why wouldn't you em employ, if, 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 instead of just saying all of the above, you should actually do all of the above. And low carbon biofuels and utilizing the renewable fuel standard to, to build out uh, additional markets and additional capacity is, is a tool that should be employed. I wish I could say that I was pleased across the board with their enthusiasm for utilizing uh, biomass-based diesel. But the fact of the matter is, uh, I think they've consistently fell short. But, you know, it's on us to continue to educate, to help them understand uh, both the, the public health benefits, the climate benefits, and the, and the benefits to, to energy security and rural America by uh, continuing to build out this industry. Absolutely. Kurt, it's going to be a busy year from a biofuels perspective. We've got that final set rule coming in June. What are some other timelines that you're keeping an eye on from the CFAA's perspective? Sure. We're also very uh, keen on, on the developments with respect to the Farm Bill. There's a lot of important uh, energy title programs, uh, research and development in the Farm Bill that would support our industry, build additional feedstocks, uh, and support uh, development of the fuel. The Farm Bill is one. Um, renewable fuel standard, we, you know, obviously that's, that's a, a fight we fight uh, uh, year-round now, I guess. Um, and then the activity in the, uh, the Congress with respect to incentives that were enacted in the Inflation Reduction Act for uh, further development of low-carbon biofuels. Uh, there's no shortage of, of policy items here in Washington that we're keeping an eye on. That's so true, folks. It is going to be a busy, busy week in the world of biofuels. Keep up to speed with our friends at Clean Fuels Alliance America. They're pushing for that renewable biodiesel. Kurt Kovark, Director of Federal Policy, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Always glad to be with you, Mike. And folks, stay with us. We're going to talk about that debt ceiling snap fight with Jackie Fatka of AgriPulse here when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation, powered to perform. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, 
They deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. As we take a look at this market trade so far on Friday, fairly mixed action being seen. A little bit of pressure once again in soybeans and corn with the wheat market doing its best to uh, rebound a little bit, but only up slightly here as we work through the trade. We are coming off the lows a bit here in the soy complex. That is a good sign at least. Overall, though, we're seeing active selling of corn and soybeans in Brazil due to this year's significant production increases. That continues to create headwinds for those commodities, while the funds really continue to favor the short or sold side for wheat. Kansas City wheat prices have struggled after failing to take out the $9 level back on Tuesday amid improving forecasts for the dry southwestern plains. It's too late to bring most of that crop back, which is going to contribute to further declines in U.S. Uh, and global wheat supplies. But that's a story for another day when Russia's not dumping cheap wheat onto the world market. There's some rumblings and warnings of yield drag for corn due to late planting, but it is still mid-April. We have plenty of time to get the crop in. There's also worry in the northwestern quarter of the Corn Belt as yield drag could be far truer in parts of the Dakotas and Minnesota where we still see snow cover and more snow being seen on Friday morning across that part of the region. And we're just going to have to keep our eyes on the weather here. We're also watching the outside factors as uh, the markets, uh, both here in the U.S. and globally, and how that weighs on things. Crude oil prices slipping deeper into the April chart gap earlier in the session today, but they bounced off that 100-day moving average to trade 1% higher here as we work through the session. Overall, in the livestock trade, cattle futures are mixed here as we await this afternoon's cattle on feed report, while the hog market is slightly higher here in early trading. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. As I mentioned, this was a busy week in Washington, D.C. Administrator Regan testifying before the House Ag Committee. We heard from Kurt Kowark about that. We've got a farm bill discussion continuing to go on. Many, many ag committees are holding hearings. We've got the debt ceiling discussion currently taking place in Washington, D.C. And it sounds like there might be some interaction between the debt ceiling debate, the farm bill debate, and food stamp SNAP policy more broadly. It's a lot to unpack. Joining me to help make sense of it is Jackie Fatka. She serves as associate editor over at AgriPulse, has been following this issue closely for the week. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Mike. Uh, sometimes it's best to start at the beginning when we're biting off a big old piece of this federal elephant here, Jackie. So we've got the debt ceiling discussion underway. Bring us up to speed on the impact of the debt ceiling debate. What happens if, if we don't get this thing solved here in the next couple of months? Yeah, so a lot of discussion uh, with the House being uh, in control with Republicans. Uh, they are, are wanting to have some restrictions on how the president will spend the additional money if they do allow this debt ceiling to be increased. And so, uh, you know, a lot of this discussion has been going on for weeks, months. Um, but Monday, uh, House Speaker McCarthy was in the New York Stock Exchange and, and made some comments that... They are ready to unveil, unveil a deal, um, not a deal, I should say, just their proposal. Um, there's there's not been any negotiation with Democrats on this. This has just been what the Republicans are looking at doing. We saw some final proposed language actually on, on Wednesday on where they were going to do that. And, um, you know, we go back to the start of this congressional leadership with McCarthy having some issues of getting uh, the final speaker vote confirming him. And a lot of that was because some Republicans want to make sure there is more restrictions on how money is spent. And so, you know, long story short, um, this, the food stamps, the SNAP, as they call it, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, uh, they're looking to put additional work requirements on that. And, you know, there's a lot of sound bites within this discussion and, you know, work requirements for able-bodied working adults without dependents, ABODs as they like to call them, there's always been restrictions on that, that you can only get benefits for three months out of three years if you are within a certain age limit. So when that final legislation proposal came out on Wednesday, they are looking to, right now, it's if you were age 18 to 49 without a dependent, so you don't have any kids, uh, then you would have to, to do some work requirements, either volunteering and an employment training program. Um, this proposal actually increases it to 55, so the age from 50 to 55. Um, this is less than some earlier proposals. Dusty Johnson out earlier this year had one that actually would extend it up to 65, so similar to what you know, some people would see it at a retirement age. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's the biggest kind of piece that people are watching. Um, it would expand it from the age 50 to 55. Um, but again, a lot of sound bites in this discussion. 
There certainly are. And Jackie, I'm curious because now this debt ceiling discussion is sort of infringing on the territory frequently ascribed to the Farm Bill, which is food snaps. Can you talk... How does this discussion for the debt ceiling change the discussion coming later this year when we get into SNAP and nutrition spending big on the farm bill side? Is there going to be some overlap? So, you know, a couple of kind of primary things. Uh, the farm bill, we reauthorize it every five years. The nutrition title within that um, allows for some changes. You know, we can make changes to SNAP. However, SNAP will continue without a farm bill. So if we don't get a farm bill continued, we will continue to have SNAP assistance available to those who need it. So, um, you know, it's, it's been several decades that we've had this partnership, actually, Dole and McGovern, um, several decades ago in the late 70s, saw the need to, to have this because you could get support. So a lot of times we talk about the need to have nutrition and traditional programs funded through the farm bill so we can get more votes. So now this whole debt ceiling has really taken up a lot of time and delayed truly the work that that chairmen are wanting to do. You know, Chairman Thompson in the House is wanting to move forward, but uh, Speaker McCarthy is really just holding, you know, as one person told me, really kind of has a, a stronghold on these chairmen to keep them from moving forward on anything until they get this debt ceiling. So they're trying to get this debt ceiling figured out. The thought process is, Maybe there can be a vote on this in the House where Republicans can make their, quote, position known that they want to have stricter work requirements. Now, if they have the vote on that, then maybe they don't have to take a, a another vote to prove where they stand when the true farm bill comes up. And so, you know, this is where it kind of gets complicated. They could make a, a change and include it in the debt ceiling. The House would likely have to pass it on a party line vote because no Democrats are going to vote for it. It will go nowhere in the House. So a lot of this is positioning. A lot of this is, um, you know, drawing the line in the sand. And earlier this week, you know, uh, Jim McGovern, who's a staunch uh, supporter of the SNAP programs, has said if this if the Republicans want to draw this line in the sand, then we will fight to defeat the farm bill if they want to continue through that. So. This is a lot of positioning, but it's really important because, you know, there there are opportunities to improve SNAP and improve how it's done. And even within the work programs and, and the training programs that I listened to nutrition hearing this week. And, you know, sometimes when we take these huge line in the sands, it, it sends people to their corners and and then they're no longer willing to to come together and find those opportunities to really make the needed improvements. That certainly makes sense, Jack. You know, one issue that I know you have been covering over at AgriPulse, and I wasn't sure if you had a chance to, to check in on it yet today, but the Securities and Exchange Chairman, Gary Gensler, I know there's been a lot of uh, angst about his tenure. Do we have any, has there been any conversation about his work as chair at, at the SEC here in D.C. in the past week or so? You know, he's been, uh, he was he was also on Capitol Hill this week. And, uh, you know, there's there's always uh, a lot of concern on on what the SEC is doing. Um, House Republicans this week definitely were keeping the heat on him on his proposed rule. Um, but, you know, Democrats are, are in support. And, and this rule is, is basically to that would require reporting of the greenhouse emissions of different parts of the ag of the ag sector. Now, I will also tell you 
But the rule is getting a lot of pushback because it's a regulatory push down on reporting. I will also tell you, I was at the International Dairy Foods Association meeting earlier this year. A lot of companies are already doing this. They already see this as an opportunity to differentiate themselves on what they're doing to improve the environment. And so from a market standpoint, from what they already are doing to report to their shareholders, they're already looking at ways to to report that or identify things so they aren't seen as greenwashing, right? Like they're not just making a promise and not following through on it. So again, you know, this is a market-driven approach versus the government hand-down approach. And so I think, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of concern and angst from folks when they hear this SEC rule, and rightfully so, possibly. But on the business side, you know, there's a lot of opportunities within, this is a whole nother discussion, but, you know, we're very familiar, we're becoming more familiar in farm country with carbon markets. But this actually gives you more opportunities to, to provide insets in your own supply chain. So dairy companies are looking at, okay, how is this dairy farm not going to sell to Microsoft their carbon offsets, but they're going to identify in their own supply chain, how are they making the, the changes that are reducing those emissions? And then they're going to, they're going to, identify that through from the dairy farmer through the cheese or the the milk that's sold. And so, you know, whatever cooperative or, or company that's selling that can actually get credit for what's being done in the in in the supply chain from farmer to the end. So there's actually a, you know, a complementary market side of this that could benefit farmers if done right. Yes, if done right. And it certainly sounds like there will be a lot of people with calculators figuring up all of these different models. Jackie, that is an ongoing issue that no doubt is going to be with us for some time. Another issue that I know you have talked about on the food access side, and we talked about it earlier this week with Dr. Michael Dykes of the International Dairy Food Association. WIC is cutting back availability of dairy to uh, women, infants, and children who participate in that program. But there are some other tools out there they could use. Jackie, is that right? So, you know, WIC is something that is uh, for women, infant, and children, um, and it's a, another support program besides SNAP. Um, but also within SNAP, the Farm Bill, the last Farm Bill, did some pilot projects called the Healthy Milk Incentives Program, which um, is, is a way to incentivize uh, purchases of milk right now in uh, for SNAP participants. So when people use their SNAP card or they have their their you know, food stamps is not what's used anymore. It's an EBT card or it's a, um, their vouchers for SNAP. They could, they could purchase milk and then they would get a coupon that gives them, uh, another opportunity to get free milk at another time. And so there's been, uh, it was authorized up to $20 million in the last farm bill. Um, we've actually only had 9 million of that authorized. And so we're starting to see some pilot projects. We're starting to see how that works. Um, actually the very first one in Texas, we had really, really low participation rate. Only 2% of, of people actually purchased milk and then came back to purchase milk. But it was a very small, very small. It was only four stores and you had to bring it back to the same store. So there's, but that's pilot projects. We learn from those. And so there's more that we're learning as we expand this and increase the funding for that. Because at the end of the day, you want to increase those good, healthy options like milk for those SNAP recipients. Absolutely. Folks, we have been talking with Jackie Fatka, Associate Editor at AgriPulse. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us today. Great. Always great talking with you. Have a great weekend. And stay here. More AOA after this.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. In this sixth and final installment in a six-week series, Nelson Neal, head of CHS Global Research, describes another trend shaping the future of agriculture. Today, we're talking about globalization. Nelson, agriculture is a global industry, and that means changes around the world affect U.S. farmers. Will China continue to play a significant role in global markets? Absolutely. And you know what? It's not just about demand. Think about the broader role that China plays in agriculture. They're one of the largest or the largest producer of active ingredients that go into crop protection chemicals that eventually find themselves on acres and acres of U.S. soils. That's number one is on the production and supply side. Number two, they're a global supplier or certainly an influencer of global trade flows of fertilizer. And then, of course, perhaps one of the most obvious ones is China is a great demand sink for a number of commodities. China's got a big role to play in terms of where U.S. agriculture is headed. How about Brazil, Nelson? Do you expect them to continue to emerge as a major crop exporter? The answer, again, just like China, is absolutely. Brazil is the largest exporter of soybeans and also maintains a significantly sized corn crop. They've got certainly the land available for expansion, and their yields continue to improve. Net-net, I think they're well positioned to continue to play a significant role. With all these factors to consider, Nelson, what's the bottom line for U.S. farmers? Pay attention to what's going on in the marketplace because a lot of these changes will manifest themselves in market pricing and that may or may not give the farmer a margin opportunity when he looks to lock in either the price of his inputs or the value that he receives from the crop that is ultimately being produced. That's Nelson Neal, head of CHS Global Research. Nelson, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you, Mike.
And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You know, earlier this week, while I was in Washington, D.C., with the National Association of Farm Broadcasters, we heard from 27 different legislators, and every single one of them mentioned the labor challenges across the, the, across the economy. We're hearing it everywhere, trucks, trains, shippers, ocean-going freight shippers, or just hiring help on the farm. It is tough to get labor. And those labor challenges are still there in the supply chain system specifically. Joining us now for an update is Mike Steenhook. He serves as the executive director for the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, thanks for taking time to talk with us today. It's good to be with you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Let's start with what's developing over here on the West Coast ports. We've seen a number of labor disputes pop up here in the past few weeks. Mike, fill us in. What's the impact to agriculture of the situation developing there on the West Coast? Yeah, so the, the kind of the scenario is you have two parties, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. They represent basically both dock workers that load and unload ships throughout the entire West Coast of the United States and even into Canada, as well as Alaska and Hawaii. And then the Pacific Maritime Association, which represents the, the ocean carriers and the terminal operators um, that actually are the facilities in which that activity occurs. And they're working on a new five-year contract and, um, you know, it, it continues to, tension continues to increase uh, between the two parties. You know, we've seen, you know, a temporary, you know, closure at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach on Good Friday. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we're continuing to see some slowdowns at some of these facilities. Really, it's kind of an effort to increase the, the pressure in the negotiations. Now, there, there was an announcement uh, just over the last, uh, last, last evening uh, about a potential agreement on some of the more sensitive points uh, of dispute between the two parties, but uh, the the specifics of that have not been disclosed. So we're not quite sure what to make of that. Um, obviously, we hope for uh, the negotiations to continue to proceed, but you know, this is something that, you know, while it doesn't impact the bulk shipment of soybeans and grain, that operates under a separate contract, those facilities that load bulk, bulk vessels. 
uh, this really relates to the containerized shipping of, of all products, including some agricultural products. But you know, we obviously need to have a supply chain that provides assurance, that provides predictability. Right now, the West Coast of the United States is not quite doing that. Mike, you mentioned that bulk uh, commodity transports are exempted from this. Do we have confidence in the labor agreements for the bulk commodity uh, shipments? Yeah, they, they operate under different contracts. and In many cases, the individual export facilities uh, will actually negotiate directly with the local uh, International Longshore and Warehouse Union. And so, you know, we, we continue to see that. Um, contracts get um, negotiated and agreed to. Uh, they're kind of on just on a separate timeline. And so that's something that we're, we're, we're not seeing any kind of evidence right now of any kind of slowdowns or, or problems at those bulk facilities, which, again, is the overwhelming majority of exports of soybeans and grain that occur via the West Coast, predominantly in the Pacific Northwest. They operate under a separate agreement, and, and so that's that. This isn't really impacted by that. It really this this current dispute is really impacts the you know about the four percent of containerized soybeans that get exported from the West Coast. But what what's more important to us, uh, or arguably as important, is the significant volume of meat exports that occur via refrigerated containers. Um, you can't have our friends in the meat industry adversely affected without it having an impact on soybean farmers and grain farmers. So we're obviously very hopeful for an agreement that's that's lasting uh, between the two parties so that we can have a reliable supply chain that includes the West Coast of the United States. We'll continue to watch those developments and those labor negotiations. Yes, hopefully we can keep that meat and pork moving off the West Coast and keep that supply chain rolling. Speaking of rolling, Mike Steenhook, earlier in 2022, we had a lot of conversations about the lack of rolling on America's freight railways, saw the federal government get involved to hammer out a labor dispute. From your perspective, hearing from soy shippers, is service improving across the railroads? Yeah, you know, you the, the railroads are continuing to you know hire additional personnel that's making their performance better. That was really one of the big problems that they encountered. Um, so you know, overall, we're seeing service get better, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. And you know you still encounter a number of individual uh, agricultural shippers that are really struggling with with quality, reliable rail service. So. Again, I, I, we're in a better position than we were you know, last year, last couple of years, but there's still room for improvement. All right, we'll continue to see if that can improve. And Mike, while we've got you on the line, of course, we're seeing the Mississippi River, the Upper Miss, open for bulk exports. We've got barges coming down all the way from St. Paul once again. What have you heard on the river system? Do things look well? Does the industry look poised to continue exporting up and down the Mississippi? Well, it just really shows how the pendulum can swing quite dramatically when it when it comes to rivers. Um, you know, obviously we had very low water conditions in the fall. We've had a lot of precipitation, uh, particularly of late, with including snowfall in the upper parts of the Mississippi Basin. Uh, we're actually seeing elevated water levels right now, and it's it's going to result in some some closures of some locks. Um, really, starting about you know four to five days from now. Um, for some of these in the upper part of the Mississippi River and really extending, you know, through, you know, the first week in May, in some cases, even perhaps even into the second week in May. So that's obviously something that is, 
is concerned to us. Uh, a lot of fertilizer shipments move northbound during this time of the year. So it, it really is just underscores the, the, the significance of how the river can really you know, vary from one extreme to the next. And this is a good example of that. It certainly can. Record low to flood stage in five months on the Mississippi. Midwest weather never disappoints. Folks, we've been talking to Mike Steenhook, the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. And Mike, thanks as always for joining us here today. Thank you, Mike. Good to be with you. And folks, tune in on Monday. We'll talk geopolitics with John Holzman, our friend in Europe, about the situation developing in Eastern Europe between Ukraine and its neighbors. Tune in next time to AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. 